So we had a person stay with us in our Airbnb. We have an Airbnb in our house. And we had a person stay with us, and she was from the area, North Dakota area, near what? Mount Rushmore. So she started talking about Mount Rushmore. I think that put this in my mind when it came to an illustration for today's message, which really kind of relates to this. I started thinking about Mount Rushmore. How many of you know much about Mount Rushmore? How many guys are on the mountain, the sculptures? How many? Four. Oh, wow. You guys are, you got a pretty patriotic group here. Okay, so what were their occupations? <laughs> They're all presidents, right? Okay, we got that so far. Who were they? Who's the first one? Washington then? No, Lincoln was third. Who was second? Jeffer- Jefferson, somebody said. Jefferson, and the last one was Roosevelt. Who, by the way, liked to go by Roosevelt, if you, if you wanted to know. I mean, just for your information, trivia information. He didn't like being called Roosevelt. He liked being called Roosevelt. So those are your four guys. Now, I got to thinking one time, why did they pick those guys? And I looked it up, and I didn't know if I remembered it, so I looked it up again. And I remembered it pretty close. It's pretty clear, really, when you think about it. George Washington, father of the country, he founded it. Okay, he's the main representative of founding the country. Thomas Jefferson said, all men are created equal. Gives the basis for our democracy. Abraham Lincoln, it becomes the practice that all men are equal because he frees the slaves, right? And so he establishes what Jefferson had said, so to speak. And then comes Theodore Roosevelt, who is now expanding us and, and becoming a world leader for the first time and we're becoming a world power. So that's how you get the four. Now, what's interesting about that, have you ever thought about this, that almost every nation could do the same? I mean, we could go back to the Old Testament and we could look at, at Israel and we could go to Mount Zion and we could have sculptures there. And who might we have? Abraham, whose name means the father of multitudes. He is the father of Israel. He's the father of the nation. We could have Moses, the great lawgiver, who establishes the theocracy and how we should follow God. We could have David, the great warrior king, who establishes them as a nation physically. And we could have Solomon, who with his great wisdom expands the influence of Israel throughout the known world of his time. You could do that with almost any place. But here's my point today that I want to make, is that we look at people's lives like that. And we study their lives and we learn from them and we lift them up and we idolize them and so forth. But there's really only one that we really need to truly follow. And that is the God of the universe, Yahweh. His very name means that he is the first and the last and the only one. Um, every time that the people were so enamored by his name and so fearful of misusing it that they began to camouflage it when they wrote it down in the Bible. And that's why we have capital L-O-R-D whenever it says his name instead of saying Yahweh. But Yahweh is his name, and Yahweh was so great that he basically encompasses all the attributes and all the things that made up those great men. Every great thing about every man came from him. He didn't need any of them. He just utilized them, and that was their privilege, to be utilized by him. Today we're going to talk about how great God is and how he encompasses all the greatness that you could possibly think of in leadership or in people that, that there are to think about. And we're going to do that as we look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24 is another psalm that talks about the Ark of the Covenant and how it was brought to Jerusalem. The Ark of the Covenant was like a, 
large box and they had poles and they carried it and had memorabilia inside of it. Uh, it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that was so important. It was that it physically symbolized God's presence. Have you ever felt there was another presence in the room? God's presence is extremely important. It was important in the Old Testament, and it symbolizes what we look to in the New Testament. It was so important that we talked about this a few weeks ago when they did this, the historical background of it. And a couple weeks ago, Clifton talked about Psalm 132, which also talked about this same event, but it's looking at it from different perspectives. So we're going to tackle it again today, and next week we'll look at Psalm 46. So read Psalm 46 for next week, but let's look at Psalm uh, 24 for this week, and I think we'll, we'll be encouraged as we see what God calls us to look at, as we see what a great king and God he is, that he surpasses all the greatness of all the leaders, really, who have ever lived. Psalm 24, let me read it. A Psalm of David. David's the author. The earth is Yahweh's. There it is. Capitalized, so it would be Yahweh. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Shalach. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Shalach. Today we're going to talk about how we seek not to know necessarily and study about great leaders, but to study about the one true leader, to seek the king of glory. That's what we're talking about today. In the first two verses, we see that he is the creator. We seek him because he is the creator, like Washington or like Abraham. You know, he is the one who started it off, but he did not found a nation. What did he found? The planet. He, he sculpted this planet out of nothing and made it. He made the entire universe. There is nothing that he has not made. And it goes on and it says all the earth has been made by him. Everything from, you know, the, the Grand Canyon to the Grand Tetons. All the rivers and oceans from Stanislaus River to the Pacific Ocean. Everything that you can imagine, everything in your mind's eye that you can see, God has made it. And listen to what it says here. It says, the earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, for he has founded it. He has made it. He is in control over it. He is the ruler over what he has made. That's pretty powerful stuff to start thinking about. We start thinking about God is the creator. He's the creator of everything. And the result of that, what, how does that relate to us? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 26, says something very interesting. He says, if God made everything, then what he's made is good, and we should enjoy it. shouldn't be afraid of it. We should enjoy it. If God made all the food there is to have, then it's good for us to have. We can enjoy it. Now, there's an, an interesting 
story that goes along with this psalm. After the people of Judah were, de- were you know, defeated by the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire took them to their home. They exiled them in what is now present Iraq. And when they got to Babylon, they saw that every day of the week they were worshiping a different god. And so they said, we don't need to worship another god because our god has better attributes than any of those gods. They have gods for different attributes, different things they're praying for. Our God encompasses all those things, just like we were talking about earlier. He encompasses it all. So what they did is every day they would worship different attributes of God and they would do it through the Psalms. And they had different Psalms that they would select for each day of the week to keep them focused on who the real God is. And every Sunday they would recite and pray over and talk about the Psalm that we're talking about today. So a good thousand years ago, they were doing this. To, in their, they were getting together and talking, probably on Saturday. I, no, no, Sunday. It would be Sunday. They did on Sundays. They would talk on Sundays about this passage. Now, it's easy, and I know I've gotten caught up in this before um, way too much. I mean, you find yourself getting, upset, getting wrapped up with people, and you find yourself soon, next thing you know, you're worshiping the things that God has made. You're worshiping the celebrities, or you're worshiping your family, or your nation, or you're worshiping nature. And the point here is that what we should worship is the one who made them, not those things. We worship the God who made them. He establishes that, and and at the very least, David wants the world to know that his God is God, and he is the one who is over and above all. And then the second thing he says in verses 3 through 6 is that he is the God of our salvation. And it's in this passage that we begin to realize that he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. He says, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and who shall stand in his holy place? If you remember the story, they were storing the Ark of the Covenant at Obed-Edom's house and it was down below and they had to get up. They had to go up to get to Jerusalem. When we talk about Mount Zion, by the way, this is an interesting thing. When you go to Israel and they talk about Mount Zion, there isn't a Mount Zion. Did you know that? There isn't a Mount Carmel. There's a range of mountains, and they say, oh, Mount Carmel, oh, Mount Zion. You say, well, which one? Well, it's just, yeah, that's it. It's all those. So it isn't really that specific. So this, is this mountainous area that they call Mount Zion, and in this mountainous area, there are different hills. And there was a lower hill in those days that was the old city of David, the old Jerusalem. And then they built a bigger one up above it later. But to get there, you had to go up a hill. So what they had to do is they had to ascend the hill. So who can ascend, who can take this Ark of the Covenant up the hill and into the city and to the holy place? The holy place would be the place where they're going to put the Ark. David built a large tent called a tabernacle, probably near his palace, and you'd go in there. Who can take it up and go in and sit down? Who can sit before God? Who can experience the presence of God? That's what this is talking about. And he gives the answer. He says, person with clean hands and a pure heart. How much time did you spend washing your hands this morning? No, that's not, that's not exactly what this is about. But there is some symbolism. It's, it's, what's happening here um, is, is we see a lot of symbolism. And so having clean hands is important. In fact, again, when you go to Israel, one of the things that really surprised me is archaeologists keep excavating baths. The Israelites had baths everywhere. 
because they would take ceremonial baths before they would go into the temple or before they would do different ritualistic things because they wanted to make sure they were clean. They were one of the cleanest people on earth, possibly. But, but here's the problem. The symbolism here is not so much that you're clean on the outside, but that you're clean on the inside. And, and Jesus addresses this in Matthew chapter 23, verses 26 through 28. He says, you blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which, are outward, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what's being mentioned here is not that you have clean hands on the outside, not that you look good on the outside, but what's going on inside? What's going on inside? Is there any wrongdoing? And if there is something that you've been doing wrong, have you, have you confessed it? Have you repented it? Have you told God you're sorry? And have you made it right with other people? Because that's what we need to do before we come into God's presence. That's how we enter into God's presence in a sense. And then the other thing he says is that we should have pure hearts. And this is the picture of you know, the heart being the inward person. So all that you are as a person should not be seeking things for yourself. It's not like you go to God for what you can get, but you go to God for what you can give. And you give yourself to him. Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And if a person's sincere and genuine in heart, then um, they aren't going to do the things that are false. They aren't going to be deceitful. They're going to be honest and they're going to be good. And they're going to, subsequently, they're going to receive uh, a blessing from God. And they're going to encourage and they're going to experience his righteousness and his goodness in their life, which brings about salvation. The point here is that not that you earn salvation, but that if you are coming to God, you know, broken, repentant of your sins, you're coming to God wanting to serve him and surrender to him, then that's a pretty good sign that you know him. That's where he wants us to be. And in those days, they did that looking forward to an event, believing that God was going to do something that would make this all possible. Today, we know about that event. We realize that there was only one person in history who could really come with clean hands, only one person in history who could really come with a pure heart, and that was Jesus Christ, the God-man. And when he died on the cross and he rose from the grave, it made it possible for each of us now to come before him. But still, when we come before him, the principle is still there. We need to come with clean hearts, clean hands, and pure hearts. We need to come saying, God, forgive me for my sins. I, I know you've already forgiven me, but I just want to make sure that I'm honest with anything I'm doing wrong. I want to make sure that I'm coming before you in a reverent manner. I want to make sure that I'm letting you know that I, I love you and I'm all about you. I'm, I'm coming surrendered. You don't come to God saying, this is what you're going to do for me. You come to God saying, I am yours. Take me as I am. What do, you, what do we want to talk about today? What can I learn? What can I do for you? It's more that kind of attitude. And that's when we begin to enjoy his presence um, and experience him in our lives. And he goes on to say, 
not only will he help us to do what's right and bless us when we do this and we'll experience his salvation in a more meaningful way, but he says that the generation of those or those people who do that, um, they, will, they will seek him and they will, they will experience him and his, the, the face of the God of Jacob. And the God of Jacob means the people of Israel. Um, we will be like his people. We will be like his children. We will be part of his family. And so we pray that more people will be part of his family and really experience the joy of just coming before him and surrendering to him and knowing how much that he just loves us. And then the last thing he talks about is that he is our warrior. Um, and this is the last part. It gets pretty fancy. Lift up your heads and all that. And what's that all about? Actually, what we believe it's about, and it, we don't know for absolute certainty, but we're pretty certain, is this is how they delivered the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what I mean by that is, remember it said that they were doing a lot of singing? This was a song. We've lost the melody. But what we have left are the words or a poem. And we believe that David wrote this song for the deliverance of the ark. And so when they brought the ark up, people were singing. And probably some of the Levites that had good voice were singing all these words that we hear. And then they get up to the gate, and the gate should have been opened. But they had this all planned out in advance. The gate was closed. And so David went up to the gate and he began singing as the king, lift up your, your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then the man up there, you know, the gatekeeper yelled back to him, sang back to him probably in a song, who is the king of glory? And David said, Yahweh strong and mighty, Yahweh mighty in battle, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And then again, the gatekeeper said, who is the king of glory? And David said, and probably all the people behind him, shouting, you know, Yahweh of hosts, he is the king of glory. And the gates went up and the people charged in. So it was a very powerful experience and one that people remembered the rest of their lives. That's one of the reasons that this was recorded, to remind people of that very, you know, special time. So they would lift up the gates to get into the city, but they also had to open the gates to the compound to get into the tabernacle. And that may be why it's mentioned twice as well as the emphasis. But what it really emphasizes is that the real king is not David, but the king of heaven, the king of the universe, the king of glory. And he's Yahweh, the one who's always existed. He's strong, he's mighty, he's mighty in battle. He is the God of hosts, which means he's the God of, God of armies. But not just, they use the word host because it would almost be confusing if you said the God of armies He's not the God of armies on earth. He's the God of armies in heaven. It's saying he's the God of angel armies. This is the God of battle. This is the warrior God. And he's fighting a battle. And now today he's actually won that battle. He's won that battle based on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he hasn't, he hasn't finished it off. You know what's happening? A friend of ours um, survived the, the end of the Vietnam War. She's Vietnamese. She was up on you know, wherever they were at the time in the helicopter. Remember, the helicopters were coming and taking them, and they were evacuating them on helicopters. And she actually had them come down, had to get in a helicopter with her family. One helicopter blew up. It was a frightening experience. But it made me think of this. In some ways, it's like God, it, it's different. God has already won the battle, but he's evacuating everybody in his helicopters before he finishes it off. And those people that are true believers who have embraced him will be evacuated. He's already won. 
but he wants to save as many people as he can. So he keeps holding off. He keeps holding off. No, just one more. Just one more. I can't do it yet. I can't do it yet. Just one more. Maybe one more today that will come to know me. And so he waits. The battle's won, but he's just finishing it up at this point. Still battles going on around us, invisible battles that we sometimes get glimpses of. They can both comfort and frighten us. But I really believe that there's spiritual forces fighting around us. And David is talking about this. Now, this whole idea of coming in the, to the, the gates and so forth reminded me of an experience that we had a number of years ago. Uh, a number of years ago, Christmas in San Diego, sort of an oxymoron. <laughs> you know, people wearing short sleeves, you know, flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts at Christmas time. But um, Christmas in San Diego, and my wife Carrie, we had some kids, the Christian kids in the neighborhood, and we decided to do a thing in our court. Well, she did. She organized it where every kid would go to different houses, like different stations, to, to celebrate Christmas time. And uh, my kids were really excited. My daughter was proud to say that she was playing Mari. Um, and, and my son was the horse. Uh, we, we told him there wasn't a horse, but uh, he, he, was, he had to be the horse. And he would have done well in Oakdale. Um, so we went to the different places. And at the end, we went to uh, Ron's place. Ron was kind of a curmudgeon, an old you know, World War II Marine um, with a tough exterior. And he was supposed to tell the kids, there's no room in the inn. But when they got there, he was a lot more soft-hearted than he seemed. He said, oh, come on in, kids. I can't do this. Ruin their theology. Um, <laughs> we went in and we just had a party. Um, God is not a curmudgeon, but he wants to be there for us. And, and, and we are, are really on that role, more like Ron, where, where God is saying, do you want me to come in? Do you want me to come in? You know, and are we going to say there's no room? Or are we going to break down and say, come on in? Jesus put it this way in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. Now, often that is used to talk about salvation, but it encompasses much more than that. In fact, in the context, it's basically saying God is always there, and the difference today is that you know, he, he was teaching us in the past of the symbolism of how important it is to be in his presence. But if we come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we can experience God's presence whenever. Whenever we choose to just surrender to him and talk to him, he's there. And he wants that. He wants us to relate with him. He wants us to bring our shame to him. He wants us to bring our victories to him. He wants us to bring our concerns and our problems to him. He wants always to be in relationship with us. And it doesn't have to be that time of the day that you set apart. It can be all day long. You can be talking to God in almost any circumstance you are in. You can be thinking about him and talking to him. I sometimes find myself talking to him even kind of in the back of my mind as I talk to you and I pray. And so God wants the, us to experience this presence in his life. And, and I want you to understand, too, that though we have described God as a warrior, he's not a bloodthirsty, aggressive warrior. He's our protector. He's our great protector. So great is his protection that... Um, Really, ironically, they didn't even need a wall around Jerusalem. If they truly understood his power, the rest of the world needed a wall around them. He was the one that would protect them. And when we have the new Jerusalem in heaven, it says that there will be no gates. There will be no need for gates because there will be no longer any enemies. There's a couple applications I want you to think about today. One is enjoy life. 
Enjoy the things, like Paul said, that God has made. If God has made everything, then we should be the people that enjoy it. Sometimes we get hung up upon these things. As Christians, we can almost get legalistic, and we need to understand that it's all there for us to enjoy. Um, you can enjoy whatever food you want, unless you're allergic to it, or um, maybe you, know, you don't like it, that's, but, but as long as you don't overindulge, you can enjoy food. Paul starts with that illustration, but we could talk about the things that God has made. We could talk about the planet, couldn't we? What's your favorite spot? Are you a mountain person? Are you a coastal person? Do you like some place out of country? Do you love Oakdale more than any place else? You know, where are your places? We got a yes on that. Somebody said, yeah, there's a good reason to. But, you know, where, where, do, you, where do you like? You know, what are some of your, what are your favorite songs, your favorite singers, your favorite entertainers, your favorite sports? And football starts today. Um, you know, if you like football, maybe we have something to root for this year. We'll see. Um, but, you know, whatever it is that you, um, you know, what is it that you like? And the point is that these things are all good, and they're all there for us to enjoy as long as we keep them in perspective. You could very well go home today, and you might want to do this. Go home and write down all the things that are your favorite things that God has created. I'm not just talking about spiritual things. I'm just talking about all the things around the world, in this planet. He made everything good. So write them all down. What are your favorites? Make a page of it. And then stop and thank him for each of the things that he made and how he made them so that you could enjoy them. And then make sure that you're worshiping him and not the things he made. The second thing is to prepare your hearts. It's really important that when you talk to God, and I hope you do this regularly, that you confess any known sin. In other words, you make sure that there's n- you don't have a wrong relationship with another person, that you're not doing anything that you shouldn't be doing, and you just come to God, and if you are, you say, hey, I know I'm forgiven already, but I, I don't want this to be wrong. Please forgive me for- again. I just want to say I'm sorry for what's going on here, and-, and help me to work through this, and I want to give it to you, and I pray that you'd help me to find healing in this area. And we do that on a regular basis, and we just talk to God, um, and surrender our lives to him. And then we surrender him. We don't go to God saying, this is what you need to do for me. We go to God and say, what would you want me to do for you, Lord? How do you want me to work through this situation? What is your desire for me? And we put it in from a different perspective. And if we don't yet know the Lord, then, you know, that's what, that's, we've talked about that today. You know, you recognize that you aren't a good person, that nobody is that we all fall short of God's perfection, and that Jesus died on the cross for your sins for that very purpose, and he rose from the grave, so that there's nothing that you have to do other than surrender to him. And if you surrender your life to him, then you come into a relationship with him. You know, that happens different in different people's lives. Everybody has different experiences, but God wants you to come into a relationship with him. I think it was David Brainerd, I was reading, uh, the old missionary used to say this. He said, if a mother calls her child to her, the child may come running, the child may come crying, the child may come dragging their feet. They come in different ways, but the child generally will come. If God calls you as his child, you may come in different ways, but you need to come. And ultimately, you come surrendered. You come when he calls. And if you haven't come, I pray that you'd come and talk to us today about that so we can help you in that process. And finally, what impossible thing can you attempt? What impossible thing can you attempt? I mean, think about this. If God is the mighty warrior, if he is so powerful that, you know, really if we trusted him, we wouldn't need anything, you know, ultimately he can, he can take care of anything and anybody. 
I mean, it's overwhelming how powerful he is and how little we really trust him as much as we could. You know, how, how would that change the way we trust him and the way we live our lives? Would, would we pray more fervently for somebody who's sick, for miraculous healing? Would we give? You know, we talk about giving. You know, that, the whole idea of giving, one of the interesting things is, and I think why we have this idea is it, it's a measuring point for us. You know, when people say, you say, well, how are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Well, I'm doing pretty well. Well, let's take a measurement. You give in a tithe, give in 10% of what you get, give, you make? Well, no, I'm not doing that. Well, then you probably don't trust God very much. That's a pretty good indication where you're at. You want to know where your trust level is? Well, that's one way to measure it. Isn't that interesting? God gives that to us. Are we wanting to trust God for impossible things? That's the whole idea. That's not really that big, but there are some things that are pretty big out there, like healing in a relationship, maybe. Um, or some other crisis in your family, or, or maybe financial problem. Can God heal it? Can we trust Him with it? And within the context of this, can we trust God to help us to reach other people that don't know Him, to expand His kingdom, so that they might yet be evacuated safely? Who are those people? You say, well, it doesn't do any good, and they don't really want to hear me. But you'd be surprised. That's different. I, I think of an illustration of a guy who, years ago, he'd, he'd said he'd come to know the Lord when he was a kid, but family hadn't gone regularly to the church. He'd been out of church for a good six years or so. And his heart had become hardened and frustrated with life. He made sports as God, and it didn't work out. Had a friend that played football with him who talked to him about Jesus. He was reading his Bible, but just frustrated. He's trying to do it on his own. Angry. Became very angry. Had a job in between after high school. People really nice. The guy who knew the Lord came up and talked to him about the Lord. The kid was, he just was frustrated. One time he got angry at a manager, picked him up and threw him up against the wall like he didn't lose his job. Then he went off to college with a chip on his shoulder still, but wanting to know. Came in with a scowl, but some people were nice to him. He had an older student that used to sit down with him and just talk to him. And there was another gal that lived in the dorm. She'd just talk to him. And then there was a guy that worked with the college ministry and a college pastor, and, and it took a while to, to get the rough edges off the kid. But over time, he, he changed, and he he softened. And that kid became a pastor. You believe that story? It happens. I was that kid. That was a long time ago. It's hard to believe that I'm the same person today as I was then. But God changed me. And my heart bleeds for those people that have never been in church or don't go to church regularly, for the unchurched people. And so often we say, they don't want to hear. I might get them upset. I'm so glad that there were some people out there that didn't say that about me or I wouldn't be here today. One of the big problems we have with churches is that when churches grow and we build our building, one of the great tragedies would be if that church grows to be an enormous size as other churches shrink then another church gets built and everybody goes over to that church. Another church gets built and everybody goes over to that church. That's not growth. That's transference. And most churches in America are built on people 
who already are going to a church and they just go to another church. And that's okay because sometimes God is calling them to and we don't ever want to discourage that if God is really calling a person. But boy, we, we need to see people come to know Jesus that don't know him. And so I encourage you to, to believe God for the impossible and think about just one person you can talk to this week, one person you could invite next week to come to church. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, do you think he could enable you to invite somebody to come to church or to tell them about Jesus? So I encourage you to, to, to live for the impossible. Now, this is psalmist poetry, and, and poetry the purpose of poetry um, is to expand our minds and our imaginations. And I don't think it's a stretch of imagination when we look at this to see it as talking about heaven, you know, the perfect kingdom one day. It's almost like this picture as we come with our little entourage to the gates of heaven and the gates are closed and it's kind of like David with the Ark of the Covenant. It's all set up and we say, and they, and we say you know, lift up the gates and they say, who is the king of glory? You know, lift up the gates that the king of glory can come in. Where is he? Well, the problem is, is the king of glory is on the other side of the wall. So how are we going to get in? You know how we get in? Because we know the king of glory's son, who is the co-regent and co-equal and co-powerful, and he is with us through the Holy Spirit, and so he is among us, and we have been adopted into the family. So we get in because we can put our arms around him and say, just like the people did in David's day, King David's with us, we can get in. We can say the king of glory, the true king, Jesus Christ, is here with us. And the gates open up and we enter into heaven. It's that easy. It all depends on who you know. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that we can know you. And I pray that everybody here does know you. And if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, that they would come and, uh, and, and get things right with you today. And pray that each of us would grow each of us in our own relationship with you and realize more and more how powerful and awesome and uh, great you are. In your name we pray, amen.